And you can open up in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. And we want to read verses 13 through 17. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. Why don't we stand for the reading of God's Word? I've been meaning to preach a sermon to you about piety, particularly about false piety, which is prevalent within American Christianity. I'm going to give you a little history about that, a little state of what it is. Hopefully it'll show you some things and reveal some things to you about our current American Christianity situation and why it is what it is, in at least a small way, or give you something to build on from there, or build further on something that's already there in that regard of the terrible state of American Christendom. The scripture reads, Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. This is verse 13 of Isaiah 1. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. May God bless the reading of his word. The title of my sermon this morning is The Bane of False Piety Upon American Culture. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks and praise to you for this time that we have to talk about this important matter of piety, the state of Christianity in our nation, and to look at your word in regards to this matter. Lord, I just ask and pray that you would glorify yourself through what is preached here today. Use it for good in each one's heart and mind. Continue to build your ways and your thoughts in each one's heart and mind. Your kingdom in each one's life. Lord, glorify yourself here this day the preaching of your word and of this important matter. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Since early Christianity, there has always been a desire by some Christian people to retreat from the culture, to keep oneself unstained from the present culture by refusing to engage it. Hence, the monastic movement of the 3rd and 4th centuries with its hermits and later monks, which retreated from the culture, stayed in its four walls and pretended to be really holy. This was an early form of pietism, which I view as a bane upon American culture. Monastic movement was an early form of pietism, but pietism has continued on throughout the history of Christianity in some form or another. In the 17th century, a movement that became known as pietism developed amongst the Lutherans, impacted the Calvinists, and then became prevalent amongst the Baptists. Pietism taught and or teaches yet today that we should have no involvement with what's going on in the earth. No involvement with what's going on in the earth. That we should only busy ourselves with spiritual matters. 
This pietism of the 17th and 18th centuries still finds its expression in much of American Christianity today. This pietism of the 17th and 18th centuries still finds its expression in much of American Christianity today. Pietism puts emphasis on the personal. The characteristics of it were and are just preach the gospel. Just preach. As Christians, we should just preach the gospel. Even when pietism first came on the scene, the law of God itself being used as a presentation, part of the presentation of the gospel, was debated. The pietists have always spurned the law of God. They have always spit upon the law of God. They have always pushed it away. The law of God, of course, is extremely important to the presentation of the gospel because the law of God shows man that he's a sinner in need of a savior, namely Jesus Christ. But the pietists don't like that. They like to remove God's law and just talk about the good news. Just talk about love and believe. Say this little prayer after me. So the characteristic of pietism were just preach the gospel, personal faith. This is where the saying came from, do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? Ever hear that lingo? Do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? It all strikes from pietism. So personal faith, prayer, and other characteristics. Characteristic of pietism, holy living, experience above doctrine. All emphasis is placed on the personal inward life. That's what pietism is about. It's important to note that pietism was a reaction to the cold orthodoxy of Protestantism that had settled in after more than 150 years after the Reformation started. The pietistic movement was a reaction to the cold orthodoxy of Protestantism. 150 years after the Reformation started, the church had become imbalanced to where doctrine was held paramount to the exclusion of the personal impact Christ and Christianity should have on one's personal life. Christianity had come to the place where it primarily affected the culture and was useful to nations. But little was seen, at least by some, of people showing pursuit of God in their personal lives. Pietism went wholly in the other direction and placed the primary emphasis on the personal as a reaction to that. Again, just preach the gospel, personal faith, prayer, holy living, experience above doctrine, all emphasis placed on the personal inward Life. That's what pietism is all about. With people, you'll notice when you read history, they always go to extremes. Culture or the church or your personal life gets out of balance. People often go to the other extreme before they find any balance within their life or within the culture, within the nation, whatever it may be. Most always view it as an either or. I'm going to be this way or that way. They don't see a balance. They see it as an either or. 
when in truth both are needed. Christianity affects both the personal life of a person and Christianity affects the culture as a whole, affects the nation as a whole, both the personal and the corporate. The personal and the nation, the culture at large, are affected by Christianity. This shift to pietism, which is the prevalent view of Christianity in America, and it has been for hundreds of years now, this shift to pietism is seen even in the difference of hymns. You look at hymns up until the 17th century, and they talked about Christ not only being a savior, but also being a king. They talked about him having a kingdom. They talked about him impacting the nations of the earth. I'm talking from the earliest of Christianity, the hymns, all the way up to the 17th century, talked about those things. About nations being impacted for Christ. About him being a king. About him having a kingdom. And his kingdom impacting the nations of the earth. You look at the hymns since then, over the last 250 years, They're all, for the most part, focused on the personal, the inward, piety. In other words, Christianity only affects me, myself, and I, and really has nothing to say to the culture at large, nor should it affect the culture at large. In fact, they brought in a whole eschatology to complement it that says we're all supposed to get out of here at any time. Things are supposed to get worse, so who cares anyway what's going on in the culture? It complements pietism, the futurist eschatology that's prevalent in American Christianity today. That's a fact. Pietism is alive and well today. Most of American Christianity follows its genre. Listen to Christian radio. I don't care which Christian station it is. What are 98% of the sermons about? Inward. Personal. All the emphasis on the individual. So Christianity has nothing to say to the nations. Nothing to say to the culture. Nothing to say in response to the condition of the culture. Nothing to say regarding the public policies of the culture. It's just supposed to be this little ghetto. This little subculture that's sitting off on the side. That's why I call it the bane of pietism upon American culture. We've created a Christianity that is indifferent to the culture and has nothing to say to the culture. Lord knows we believe in preaching the gospel here at Mercy Seat. Lord knows we go out on the streets often. Where are the pietists who say we should just preach the gospel? Where are these pietists who say we should just preach the gospel? Some of us were out this week at the university preaching the Word of God to the students there. Didn't see any pietists there. Go out to the Sodomite parade. Don't see any of the pietists there who say just preach the Gospel. We truly have a Christianity that has nothing to say to this culture. I was talking to a woman this week. She said her pastor, she's frustrated because they won't get involved in anything. Politically speaking, regarding public policy, regarding the murder of the preborn, won't even allow that to be talked about within the church. 
She said, he's been on the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount for two and a half years and he brags about it. I said, that's because of his theology. That's because of what he's embraced to believe. It's pietism. He thinks that is spiritual. That is the primary focus of his Christianity. Is all what goes on inside me, my personal being. He doesn't believe it has anything to say to the culture at large, to the nations. You have to understand that. Pietism encourages people to retreat from or be indifferent towards things which are not spiritual. Which are, and we just looked at, just preach the gospel, just pray, just have personal holiness. And this, brothers and sisters, I submit to you, is the bane of pietism. It's indifference towards the culture around it. It's indifference towards the culture around it. It was the bane of indifference which produced the social gospel. The social gospel, which I've taught about and showed to be contrary to Scripture of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, was a reaction to the indifference and disinterest most of Christianity showed towards anything having to do with what wasn't considered spiritual. It didn't have to do with just preaching the gospel or just praying or just talking about our personal holiness. They weren't interested in it. And there were some who responded to it, reacted to it. That's why the social gospel came about. Wrong as it is, contrary to Scripture as it is, I've showed in my sermon. But it was a reaction to pietism, which is also imbalanced, wrong, and against the whole of Scripture. There needed to be a reaction against it, the pietism. But that was a false, unbiblical reaction, the social gospel. A balanced Christianity doesn't see it as an either-or. A balanced Christianity understands that Christ and His kingdom impacts both the lives of individuals and of nations. Amen? The lives of individuals and of nations. Even Charles Wesley, who was a pietist (laughs) in his theology, understood that. He said individual change brings cultural change. And if there is no cultural change, then there's been no true individual change. Christianity impacts both the life of the individual and the nation as large. What? Our Christianity teaches us to dance and party while the condition of the world around us should have no concern to us at all? That's how most Christians live their lives. Oblivious to the condition of the culture around them. Uncaring about the condition of the culture around them. Indifferent. Disinterested. And I say what? Our Christianity teaches us to dance and party while the condition of the world around us should have no concern to us at all. To sit in the four walls of our ivory tower as though we have nothing to say to the nations. Jesus taught us to disciple the nations in all He has commanded. What? Christianity says that God has nothing to say about government, economics, education, family, the state, 
etc. This is the bane of pietism. The fact that it is indifferent towards the culture. And that it has nothing to say to it. Except, repeat this little prayer after me, and increasingly, it doesn't even say that anymore. As I said earlier, where are these pietists out preaching the gospel? When's the last time someone came up and witnessed to you? When's the last time you found a track someone had left laying around even? The truth of the matter is, the Bible speaks to all matters of life. The pietists have no theology other than inviting people to repeat the little prayer after them and then become a part of their moose lodge. That's all they have going. That's what they do. That's why real estate is important to the pietists. Having these buildings, bringing people into it. It's the Moose Lodge. And your fellow water buffalo, your fellow Moose Club members, they are those who gather with you each Sunday to have master appreciation ceremonies and do their, let's study the Bible 10,000 times, but never act upon it, Bible studies. They spend their lives talking to each other while the nation, while the culture, while the peoples of the earth need us to talk to them. Amen? They need to hear from God's Word. And we are His ambassadors. We are His witnesses. We are declare it to them. Well, most of Christianity spends its whole life talking to each other, building up great ministries of men where they get patted on the back. And their whole ministry has nothing to do with anything other than inside the church. Period. I have a ministry, brothers and sisters, that's inside the church. I'm a pastor. That's an inside ministry. But I understand the importance of going out into the marketplace, being on the streets, and declaring the truth of God's Word. Amen? And addressing anything and everything I see in the culture that's contrary to His Word. And declaring what His Word has to say in regards to it. In public policy and the matters of the culture at large. The pietists can't sustain anything because they're dispensational in their theology. Dispensationalists have no regard for the Old Testament. They see no usefulness for the Old Testament other than to draw analogies from it or make allegories from it. They reduce things just to the New Testament. Everything they see about Scripture has to do with the personal. The inward. Those who stand opposed to the thinking of dispensation, many of them, most of them, myself included, are known as covenantalists. We see a lot of continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. When you read the writings of New Testament Scripture, they obviously saw a lot of continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. When you read the writings of the early church fathers, they clearly saw a lot of continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But over the last hundred years, we've created a whole new thing called dispensationalism, which just spits out most of the Word of God, has no value to it whatsoever, and that's why they spit on the law of God. They view it as having no value whatsoever. And they've embraced an eschatology that complements that for them. 
And this thinking, brothers and sisters, has practical implications in the earth. Real life implications. What you believe theologically always has practical implications in how you govern yourself. Because of their theological presuppositions, the pietists deny that Christians should ever get involved in engaging the culture. Politics, government, oh, wow, that's way off the charts. Many of them can't even abide doing anything for the pre-born because that's been labeled as a political issue. And besides, the little babies in the womb, they couldn't repeat the sinner's prayer anyway. Because of their theological presuppositions, the pietists deny that Christians should ever get involved in engaging the culture. The pietist gets far more upset that Christians would picket or blockade an abortuary then they will ever get upset about the fact that little helpless preborn babies are being torn apart by the abortionists in the abortuary. That is a fact. I've met so many of these pietists, they make me sick since I got involved in pro-life matters 20-some years ago. They're more upset that you as a Christian are doing something like picketing. Oh, you blockaded the door of an abortion. You violated the trespass law. That bothers them. The fact that babies are being killed, they don't have nothing to say. An abortionist gets shot. All the pietists condemn that. But they never condemn the killing of the preborn to begin with. And surely not with the enthusiasm with which they condemn the person who shot the abortionist. This is a fact. Dan Gibson was sharing a story with me about an author and Christian teacher who lived down in Texas. He lived in a dry county. You know what a dry county is? You can't find any alcohol there. Why? Because the pietists rule. Because the pietists rule. And drinking, that involves your personal being. That's a horrible thing. People should not drink. We will not allow alcohol to be sold. In that same county, there's an abortion clinic there. You know how many Christians come out? Zero. The Christian teacher and author tried to get him involved. They have no interest. That's a political issue, brother. No interest. This Christian author and teacher said, perhaps if I could just get word out that they were serving alcohol inside the abortion clinic, we would suddenly have hundreds and thousands of Christians outside of it. Do you understand the bane of pietism and its ill effects upon Christian people, and upon our nation as a whole. It has retreated. It has reduced what it is. It's hiding out within its four walls. It wants to be in the ghetto, in the subculture, waiting for the flight out, saying nothing to the nations, even though our king's last order and command was to go out and disciple all the nations and all that I have commanded you. Amen? When I got involved in pro-life work, the pietists came to me right away and said, Brother, you're wrong. We should just preach the gospel. As though we can't do both. We can't protect our neighbor and preach the gospel too. It has to be an either or. We can't walk and chew gum at the same time. It might be too difficult. What I've learned is, because of my involvement in speaking up for the preborn, it's given me countless opportunities to preach the gospel. 
I help the preborn, speak up for them, because I know Jesus. Because he radically transformed my life. So it's no longer me-centered, but other-centered. Desirous to serve him and desirous to serve my fellow man. They told me, well, when I'd ask them if they'd get involved, we should just pray about abortion. Just pray, Matt. We shouldn't be out there picketing or blockading those doors or showing those photographs. We should just pray that abortion ends. Do you know how heretic that thinking is? Remember Christ's talk in Matthew 25. You could turn there, verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. Scripture reads, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then will He sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he gets into actual individual Christian acts. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now I ask you, Jesus lays these good works these good things to do out. Did he say just pray that they won't be hungry? Just pray that they will get fed? Did he say just pray that they won't be thirsty or just pray that they get a drink? Did he say just pray that someone will take them in or did he say take them in? Did he say just pray that they won't be naked or just pray that they'll get some clothes? Did he say... Uh, Just pray they won't be sick or just pray someone else visits them. No, he said, do those things. Did he say, just pray that people get saved? No, we have to preach the gospel. Should we just pray that innocent preborn babies shouldn't be butchered in death camps? No, we should take action that they aren't butchered in death camps. Amen. This is a heresy. It's false piety. The pietist always wants to use something that's of God to justify not doing another thing that's of God. The pietist always wants to use something that's of God to justify not doing another thing that's of God. So he takes prayer. That's hell he held up by the pietists. And he says, we should just pray. Doesn't that sound spiritual? Does it sound holy, doesn't it? So spiritual. We should just pray. Not dirty our hands with actually doing something for the preborn. Just pray. It's baloney. We should act on their behalf too. Amen? As we saw in the book of Isaiah, defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. God calls us to take action on behalf of others. Not hide behind our pietism and say, I'm praying for you. James addressed that in his epistle, didn't he? He certainly did. Be warmed and filled. Go on your way. And not give them anything?
other verses which make it clear that God condemns this dualism, this Gnosticism which is prevalent within American Christianity, which is pietism. With the spiritual. As though the spiritual somehow never touches the natural. You know what I'm saying? The truth of the matter is, if it's truly spiritual, it will impact the natural. That is a fact. And to think otherwise or say otherwise or promote something otherwise, you're the heretic. You're the Gnostic. You're the dualist. Which early churchmen condemned wholeheartedly and which Scripture condemns. Our text. Turn there again. Isaiah chapter 1. Verses 13 through 17. Look what God says about those who want to do these spiritual things. Tend church, have prayer, Bible studies. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Who established these things? God did. And he's saying, I can't endure them anymore. He can't endure them anymore because they were doing all the religious things they were supposed to be doing, but they weren't doing those things which were dear to his heart, which were of great importance, which he gets to as the text goes on. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. He established those things. They are trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Who established prayer? God did. So, no, I'm not going to even listen to you. Your hands are full of blood. And I submit to you that Christianity's hands are full of blood. Sit by and do nothing while innocent blood's being shed. Think God has nothing to say about it. Think you have no duty in regards to responding to it. Greatest sin, greatest evil in our nation. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. God saves us from something, namely doing evil, but he also saves us for something. Verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. This is why he was sick and tired of their piety. Because they were doing all the religious stuff, like the pietists of our day do, but they weren't doing those things which were dear to his heart. He didn't care about justice. And care about doing good, rebuking the oppressor, defending the father's sword, pleading the widow. And he goes on to a host of other things as the book of Isaiah continues. Look at Micah, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. God repeatedly rebukes his people for their pietism, for their phony pietism. Where they do those religious things which God established, but they're not doing the things that really matter. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands rivers of oil? These are all things God established. Amen? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Even go beyond those things. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly? to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen? Amen. Justice is important. Ministries of mercy are important. Look at 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. Remember the rebuke there? 1 Samuel 15, 22. 
I believe it was Saul who disobediently offered sacrifice. And what did Samuel say to him? Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than that of fat rams. God wants us to live in obedience to His Word, be involved in those things which are important to Him in the earth. In the earth. They're out of balance, these pietists. They think Christianity is just supposed to be all focused on me, myself, and I. Listen to the sermons. Understand what I'm saying. Listen to Christian radio. Listen to what most Christians feed on. It's 98% of the time, me, myself, and I, Christianity. All focused on the personal. Look what Christ himself said in Matthew 23, verse 23. Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and so they should, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. See what I'm saying? It's not an either or. Christ and Christianity affects the personal life, but it also affects the nations. The culture has an impact us, so we have an impact as salt and light within the culture. Look at Isaiah 59, verses 4 through 19. Isaiah chapter 59, this is the last passage we'll look at. Isaiah 59, verses 4 through 19. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us. Nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. This is what people are like who don't care about justice in the earth. I submit to you there's a state of American Christianity indifferent towards the culture, believing it has nothing to say to the culture. Like dead men in desolate places, we all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. Oh, it's getting worse. Oh, it's worse. It's getting worse. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. 
in transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands afar off. For truth has fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. So truth fails and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. We're about there in our culture today, aren't we? You want to depart from evil, you make yourself a prey to this culture. They've made public policy to punish those who do good and reward those who do evil. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. Like Christ just talked about in Matthew 23. Like the other passages I just talked about talk about. His throne is a throne of justice, the Bible says in the book of Psalms. When you know God, it should bother you when you see injustice in the earth. How do we know what's unjust? By the law of God. When you see innocent babies being killed, if you can just flip it off and say, what do I care? I've shown pastors photos of murdered preborn babies and watch them snicker. And then go on to tell me, do you think that I need to do something about abortion in order to be saved? I didn't even say anything about that having anything to do with your salvation. But their pietism forces them to say those things. It's their presupposition that's whacked in their heads. And they're put out as prima donnas and that which you should emulate, young people. And many of the older people here know the ghetto they try to constrain you to be in, in their pietistic ghetto. Don't allow it. Understand your right standing before God, that it's always only through faith in Jesus, plus nothing. And do what God's given you to do in the earth. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord sought and displeased him that there was no justice. Verse 16, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Why? Because God knows that's part of the vestige he puts within all men. Justice matters. And people who know him, justice should be even that much more important. There was no intercessor. The scripture goes on and says, therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness. It sustained him for he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly, he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay. So shall they fear. The name of the Lord from the west and the glory, his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. When all people of God fail in the earth, God himself will render justice in the land. God has it built within his creation that when man lives in rebellion against him, there's an imploding that takes place in and of itself of the culture. But he's not indifferent towards the culture in that he just set that emotion to be that way. He actually brings specific acts of judgment upon nations 
that live in rebellion to him. A lot of people think, oh, he only judged Israel in the Old Testament. What are you talking about? Almost every prophet in the Old Testament addressed other nations for living in violation of God's law besides Israel. He judges all nations that live in rebellion to his law. In America, won't be any different. The injustice of abortion, same-sex marriage, homosexuality being paraded down our streets, pornography everywhere, those who are the victims of their spouse committing adultery with no, nothing they can do in regards to what their spouse did. I could go on and on and on and on. And the church has nothing to say about that. They think God has nothing to say about that. That's not spiritual. I wouldn't want to sully myself with that. Let me just continue to party and dance over here and pretend that isn't happening. Another practical example of how this has pietism has real implications in the earth. A woman I was talking with earlier this week, she told me about how her pastor never talks about anything dealing with government from his pulpit, ever. All the sermons have to do with all the pietistic characteristics of Christianity. She said, however, this past week he put out an email about socialism. He's never addressed what's going on in Madison all these weeks. Never addressed when they allowed homosexuality to be the standard within our military. Didn't say a word about that. Never says anything. But he put out an email about socialism this week. I told her, I said, that's because of his presupposition. Because of his theological foundation. He cannot countenance that. He cannot see how those things have anything to do with his Christianity. Because of his pietism. So he sends it out as an email. God forbid that he would address it from the pulpit. That's not part of Christianity. That's not part of the pietistic code. So he sends it out in an email. Because that's a separate part of his life. That's Facebook. That's email. It's okay to talk about it there. See how whack that is? As Christian people, we should be a theologically driven people. Everything we do, everything we think should be driven within us theologically to do and to act the way we do. These people compartmentalize their little life. I meet them out on the streets when we were in Mississippi. I had the Christian police officers telling me, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. They compartmentalize. This is my life as a police officer right now. My Christianity doesn't touch that. I'm not in the church building. I'm not out on house calls. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? It's the bane of American culture. Pietism. And then as the country goes down worse and worse, then they say, see, see, Jesus is coming back. Is he? See, it all points to that. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not because Jesus is coming back and the way you render those passages, Mount Olivet Discourse and whatnot, it's because God's people aren't living in obedience to Him. We're not being the salt and light He calls us to be and when we're not, 
Jesus himself said the only thing we're good for is to be thrown onto the ground and trampled under the foot of men. That's the judgment American Christianity is experiencing. And sadly, most of them won't get it and realize they were wrong and probably won't even admit it then till their head's sitting in a vat of urine down at the local gulag. And they haven't been raptured out. I was listening to a um, Christian speaker, talking head, radio show host, this week. Brandon House. He has retreated into pietism fourscore. I've watched his ministry for 20 years. He more and more retreats into pietism. The pietists got him by the throat. He used to allow other thinking within his worldview weekends. He now acts like he never even thought that way or he ever allowed men who think differently than the pietists to ever speak at one of his gatherings. He is consumed now with attacking anyone who isn't a pietist and his brand of pietism. And he is consumed with calling anyone who doesn't agree with his form of eschatology a heretic. Here's what he said this week, because he just keeps moving further and further into the pietistic camp. Quote, we have to be careful not to be involved in moralizing. You know, having involvement with government and legislation, particularly if there's someone who's there who doesn't believe in the exact points of Christianity we believe in. We shouldn't have anything to do with that. We have to be careful not to be involved in moralizing, just as the Muslims are seeking to moralize and to force Sharia law on us. We as Christians don't want to be trying to force onto the culture and say, you have to follow these ideals. This is what the pietist does. He thinks Christianity has nothing to offer to the culture. That God's law is not applicable to being the rule of law in a land, even though it was for nearly 1,500 years throughout all Western civilization. Do you see what's going on here? Here's Brandon House saying that if we attempt to say that God's law should be the rule of law for a nation, his moral law should be the rule of law for a nation, that we're like Muslims who are trying to force Sharia law down everybody's throat. We're not forcing it down anybody's throat, but we have a duty to make his law known. Amen? Here's what he says. What we need to be calling people to is holiness. See the pietism? That's what we need to be involved in. He views that if you believe that God's law should have anything to do with the law of the land, that you are trying to moralize people. The pietists have thrown God's law under the bus. Does the law legislate morality? Yes, it does. There is no law on earth that doesn't legislate morality. The only question is, whose law are we going to legislate? God's law or the humanist law? Most Christians would say, surely not God's law, because they think God's word has nothing to say about any matters regarding government. 
How is pietism a bane upon the American culture? One, it's indifferent to it. Two, it has nothing to say to it. Three, it spits on the law of God. Retreats from engaging the culture in any way, shape, or form. Pietism just allows you to embrace a moose club form of Christianity. The church building is the lodge and your fellow pietists are your fellow lodge members. You talk to each other over and over again but never engage the culture. You do your thousands of let's study the Bible but never act upon it, Bible studies. And you get to feel like you're better than all those other Christians. The truth of the matter is, God has preserved his law and his word for us. And we are, as his ambassadors, are to make his holy law and great salvation known to the inhabitants of the earth. And that's what the early Christians did. They made his law and his great salvation known to individuals. To the common man on the street, as well as the emperor himself. That's who they addressed their writings to. was the emperors, the magistrates of their day. Understanding that true Christianity affects both the individual and impacts the nation. And it's not neither or. Let's stand up. We'll have a word of prayer. Hallelujah, Father. We give thanks and praise to you for this time that we had in your word today and talking about this important matter of pietism. I pray that it would be used by you and helpful to each one here to understand the state of American Christianity, the type of Christianity we live in the midst of. Lord, I ask and pray that we would be students of your word, that we would open your scriptures, studying to show ourselves approved, that we wouldn't just hide our light under a bushel, O God. Stay within the four walls of our ivory tower, indifferent towards what's around us. The Lord is good soldiers of the gospel. We would desire to engage it, to preach your word, your holy law, and your great salvation to others, to go out into the highways and the byways, to go out, even as you commanded us, and to make you known to all the inhabitants of the earth. Lord, I pray that it be the fire within the heart and soul of each person here, I pray for the young people in this congregation, O oh God, that they would take their strength and not squander it on selfish ambition, but that they would put their faces low to the ground and seek you as to how to live their lives, what to do in the earth. Lord, so many in the world have never even heard of you still. Raise up some, O oh God, who will go to foreign lands Raise up others who understand the state of our nation and go out in the streets of America. May we make you known in the earth. Pointing people unto your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you again for what you've done in our lives, those of us who know you, that you redeemed us, that you radically transformed our lives, not to just save us from something, namely our sin and your wrath, but you also saved us for something. Namely, to live our lives to bring glory to you in the earth. To serve you in the earth. To declare your holy law and great salvation to others. And to live our lives in pursuit of you 
enjoying you, and glorifying you. And I ask this in Christ Jesus' holy name. Amen. You could be seated. You can feel free to take communion with us. That's what we're doing now. As long as you're a Christian, you've repented and believed in Christ, you can take communion with us. If you're not, we ask that you not take communion. The Lord's table is only for believers to participate in. So we ask that if you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, that you do not partake in this time of communion. But if you are a Christian, feel free to partake with us. Um, You don't have to be a member of this church or something like that to do so. We observe the Lord's table every week at Mercy Seat. We do that. Well, one reason we do it is it's the pattern laid out by the early church. And we follow in that pattern and observe the Lord's table every week that we gather. We also do it because we need to be reminded. Remember Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. We need to be reminded of this great salvation. Why? Because man, in all his arrogance and pride, always wants to think that he procures his salvation through his own arm. And this time at his table reminds us, no, it's through Christ alone that we obtain right standing with God. The bread representing his body, the fruit of the vine representing his blood, and absolutely nothing else at his table. Amen? Important to understand that. Praise his holy name. Scripture reads, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Amen? We look forward to the second advent of Christ. Praise his holy name. Even after we become a Christian, we can still think our holy hand, our great right arm, has something to do with our obtaining right standing with God. It's true. We can think, I'm saved through faith in Jesus plus... These good deeds I do. This time at his table reminds us, no, it's Christ alone. Amen? This is all that's at his table. The fruit of the vine representing his shed blood, the bread representing his body. Nothing else is at his table. The good deeds that we do, the holy living that we demonstrate, those things are the result or the evidence or the fruit of our saving faith in Christ. We don't do them to try and obtain God's acceptance. Rather, we do them because we have obtain God's acceptance. And there's a huge difference between the two. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have redeemed us unto yourself. We ask and pray, O oh God, that you would use this time at your table for good in each one's heart and mind. That we would think well on just how great this salvation is. And that we would go forth from this place, heralding it to others as your faithful ambassadors declaring your holy law and this great salvation, pointing men to your Son, Jesus. Lord, I ask and pray that each one of us would go forth from this place this week looking for opportunities to talk with others about you, 
And I ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Let's partake together. Hallelujah. Praise His holy name. Let's stand. Worship Him for a moment and then we'll close in prayer. Hallelujah, Lord. We give thanks. We give praise to You. We rejoice in You. We thank You that You, O Lord, have radically transformed us by the regenerating work of Your Holy Spirit. Praise Your holy name. May we live our lives in service to You. May we not squander them on self-ambition, but seek Your face as to what we should do with our lives and live them in service to You. Lord, I ask and pray that You would be glorified in the life of each person here. Help each man here, O God, to be a priest to his home this coming week, to open Your Word to his wife and to his children and to instruct them from it. May we not be negligent in that duty before You. Lord, I ask and pray that each one of us would look, hunt for, seek out opportunity to talk to others about You, Your law, Your great salvation. Glorify Yourself through our lives, we pray. Give us hearts hungry for You, desirous, O God, to get alone with You, to cry out to You, to seek Your face in prayer, to spend time in reading Your Word, drawing near to You, O Lord. Do it within each of us, I pray, O God. Remove any iniquity from our hearts. Give us hearts hungry for You, desirous to live for You, to seek You, to love You, to serve You. Praise Your holy name. We rejoice in You, O God. Give thanks and praise to You. Watch over each one here now, I ask and pray. And I ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. God bless you.